All right, so this morning, as Ross mentioned, we're in the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Old Testament, first book of the Bible. It's a word that means beginnings. It's about the beginnings and how God's rescue plan for the world took place, got rooted, and got going. And uh, we're going to be looking this morning at the life of Joseph. We're going to be considering his life over two weeks. We're going to be looking, looking firstly at Joseph and Jesus, and then Joseph and us. And it's going to be very hard this morning to not break into songs from the musical, but we'll do our best. My father-in-law's visiting, and I was impressed with his repertoire. So I've invited Paul um, to come and do the first number for us. Paul, you mind doing song and dance? Um, or perhaps not. God is a master storyteller. Uh, life is not random. It's not meaningless. And in Christ, even our pain doesn't go to waste. That's the message of Joseph's life which stands in stark contrast to the message of our society, which today, in this day and age, if you like, by and large, people are taught and people believe that life is random. It's meaningless. There's no real big story. There's no real big point to it. Um, modern, modern attitudes, there's no real grand meaning to life. Summed up in Shakespeare's Macbeth, who said, Life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Or perhaps a more contemporary version, Freddie Mercury and the band Queen said, nothing really matters, anyone can see, nothing really matters at all. And we can sing it, but we won't. But those stories of meaninglessness don't really satisfy us. I know a couple of years ago I was listening to the comedian, popular comedian Tim Minchin, who said that life is meaningless and chaotic, there's no purpose to it all, and it's beautiful, so enjoy it anyway. And I thought, well, that doesn't satisfy me. Not only, can I not, not only do I not want to believe that life is meaningless, that doesn't make sense of the intuitively felt facts of life. We think about our lives not as a series of problems to be solved before we die, but as a story that comes to us scene by scene as we journey through life. The English writer G.K. Chesterton said it best when he said, I'd always felt life first as a story. And if there's a story, then there's a storyteller. We talk about our lives in terms of what should we do? What's the right way to behave? What's the appropriate thing for me to be doing at this part in my story? What does the storyteller want me to do? And as we look at the life of Joseph this week and next, we see in Joseph's life that there is a storyteller who weaves together not just his events, but the events of history in total. So we're going to read from Genesis chapter 37. If you have a Bible and want to turn there, we're going to be reading um, from verse 11 to 24. Now, way, way back, many centuries ago, not long after the Bible began, Jacob lived in the land of Canaan, a fine example of a family man. Jacob, Jacob and sons. No, I won't go there. Jacob was not a fine example of a family man. Let's just say that. We've looked at his story for the last few weeks. Jacob comes from a dysfunctional family and developed a dysfunctional family all by himself. Uh, he had 12, 13 kids from four different wives, which is a recipe for chaos in the home and difficulty and tension. He's not a fine example of a family man. But Jacob's favorite son, there's his first mistake, Jacob's favorite son was his son Joseph, um, who he separated out from the rest. He was one of the youngest and said, this is my favorite. He's the one I love the most. And he proved it by giving him a special coat that, again, marked him out, made him look more special than the others. And Joseph, because he had this kind of um, millennial complex, 
Um, he fits in well with our millennial generation. Because he had this millennial complex of being the special and chosen part of the human race, um, he decided to tell his brothers just how special he was. So on one night or two nights, he had a couple of dreams. And he interpreted the dreams basically to say, I'm better than you and you're going to all bow down before me one day. And Joseph decided it would be a good idea to tell his brothers that that was his dream. Now, I have a brother. If he was to ever have said something like that, it would not have gone well. Pete Clark at the back has four brothers, three brothers. Four brothers, thank you. He has four brothers. And uh, I know in the home of the Clarks, if that was to have happened, that wouldn't have gone down well. And so we're going to pick up the story of Genesis from um, verse 11 after Joseph has told his brothers these dreams and see what happens next. His brothers were jealous of him. No kidding. And it, but his father kept the saying in mind. The father kept the saying in mind. Which reminds me of Mary, keeping in mind the things that were said of Jesus. But anyway, now his brothers, were, uh, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Sheshem. And Israel, Jacob, said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Sheshem? Come, I'll send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. Which again reminds us of Abraham and Isaac's exchange for a few chapters back. If you've been following the series, here I am, says Joseph. So he said to him, go now, see if it's well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him to the valley of Hebron and he came to Sheshem. And a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they've gone away for I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let's kill him. Throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what became, what will become of his dreams. And when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let's not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Cast him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. They took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty, but there was no water in it. So thus begins Joseph's tale, and it's a remarkable story. They decide not to kill him and then eventually to sell him to a group of traveling Ishmaelites, sell him into slavery. He winds up in Egypt, the superpower of his day. He then gets positioned in uh, the house of a man named Potiphar who's in charge of several people, and he looks after that house. Potiphar's wife then accuses Joseph of rape. He's then imprisoned by Potiphar as a response and result of that. He's in prison for several years. Some people with him have some dreams. He interprets those dreams. One of them dies. One of them gets put into Pharaoh's household. And he says, oh, when you see Pharaoh, remember me in the prison. And the guy forgets, like most men do. Oh, I forgot. And, uh, and Pharaoh then forgets all about it. Joseph is in the prison for two years. Until one night, Pharaoh has a couple of bad dreams. And um, the cupbearer suddenly remembers, oh, there's this guy. You, I know a guy. And uh, they get Joseph out of prison. He interprets the dream for Pharaoh. Joseph is put into a position of high estate in the land of Egypt, saves the land and surrounding lands from starvation when a famine hits. Joseph's brothers return to Egypt at the end of the story. And there's this beautiful moment of reconciliation as his family are forgiven by Joseph, restored, the relationships restored. His father comes to join them in the city. And there the people of Israel live in the land of Egypt for several hundred years before Moses comes along to set them free. 
That's the story of Joseph in a nutshell. There's lots that could be said about it. But I want to start by considering Joseph and Jesus. Because if there's, well, there's some places and some times in our lives where we feel as though we, can, we see the fingerprints of God. Fingerprints of the master storyteller himself weaving events. And you see that very clearly in the life of Joseph. Let's look at Joseph's life in two ways and see how it compares to Jesus on the macro level, the big level, the wide level, the summary level, and then on the micro level, the miniature, the small. Well, on the big, on the macro level, we see there's a massive contrast or comparison rather between Joseph and Jesus. Just as the effort to destroy Joseph led to salvation to his family and the surrounding world, so with Jesus. The effort to destroy Jesus on the cross of Good Friday led to not his destruction, but to the salvation of his family and the families of the world. At a macro level, you can see intuitively there's there's the marks of a storyteller weaving the great story of rescue. But it gets really spooky and really remarkable when you zoom in at some of the detail of of Joseph's life and see some of the incredible comparisons between Joseph and Jesus. Again, we see the storyteller at work. So Joseph is the beloved son of a father. He's sent by his father to go and find his brothers. He's hated by his brothers. Jesus is the beloved son of the father. He's sent by God the Father to his brothers. And actually it says in John 1, uh, he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. They hated him. Joseph's brothers see him coming from afar and conspire against him to kill him. So with Jesus, the chief priests took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Reuben intervenes on Joseph's behalf to stall immediate action. Not unlike the high priests in Jesus' story who warn, let's not do this during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. There's a stalling that takes place. Joseph's thrown into the pit, which in the Bible is a metaphor for death. But even in death, even in the pit, Joseph lives. Joseph's sold for 20 pieces of silver into slavery. So with Jesus, who's died, sent into the pit, but even in death lives. He's sold into captivity for 30 pieces of silver, which if you allow for inflation, I'm sure that's how it went. Or there's something else going on, I know. But there still is a comparison there. In prison, Joseph interprets the dreams of two fellow prisoners. And like those on the cross next to Jesus, one of the prisoners is destined for life, the other for death. Of the two prisoners, one's a baker, deals with bread, the other's a cup Cupbearer deals with wine, the similarity of bread and wine. Joseph is restored suddenly. He's shaven and given new clothes. Jesus is restored suddenly and given a new face, a transformed face, such that his brothers, his friends couldn't recognize him. And he's given new garments, new clothes. He's given a new body, Jesus is. Not a disembodied spirit. Jesus is raised to physical life. And in this new position of honor that Joseph is given, everywhere he goes, the crowds or the slave masters call out, bow the knee, bow the knee to Joseph. So with Jesus. His is the name, but at his name, every knee will bow, we're told. After Joseph's given his new status, years pass before he then goes on to save the people in his region. 
and is then eventually reconciled to his brothers, which he delays. If you read the story, which we'll get to next week, it, it's beautiful, but it's also it, Joseph's back and forth, back and forth, hiding, not showing his brothers. There's a delay that heightens the anguish of the story. So with Jesus. He's been restored to his father's side, and now there's a delay between his Easter Sunday and the salvation that's going to come to the entire world, to the people that God has chosen and loved. And even in his delay, you get the sense in the book of Revelation that there's a, there's a heightening of anguish as we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. That's how the Bible ends, with that cry of hurry, hurry, Lord, come and bring this reconciliation. So as you look at the story of Joseph, you see there's too many small, minor, and insignificant similarities for it to be contrived or accidental. What you see with the story of Joseph is the master storyteller at work. In the summary and in the specifics, we see that God is a master storyteller, that life is not random or meaningless, and that pain in Christ isn't wasted. You know, we all have our favorite stories that we love to hear, films that we rewatch over and over and quote, or our kids, my kids say to me, tell me again that story, tell us again, tell us again. But you get the impression that for God, the story of his son coming to redeem the world is like that. It's a story that heaven says again, again, tell us again. Before Jesus came, it was told in minor and major details throughout the Old Testament. Jesus comes, and then since then, we as a church exist to tell one another, to tell the world, let me tell you about Jesus, the story of rescue that's on offer to the world. Again and again, we tell this story. That there was a lamb slain even before the foundations of the world, we're told in the book of Revelation. That this has always been God's plan. That Jesus is the centerpiece of the entire book, the centerpiece of the entire human story so far, and we need to make much of him. You know, um, you know um, NASA, uh, uh, I learned recently that NASA are funding PhDs to get people to research how the major religions of the world will respond um, when they discover life on other planets. It's quite interesting. When they'll discover life on other planets, they're funding research to say, how will the religions, especially Christianity, respond to this? It's an interesting question. It gets the imagination going. Well, C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Narnia stories, uh, has answered that question for us. He wrote a series of science fiction books, a science fiction trilogy, where he makes this point that if there be life on other planets... Christ will also have been crucified there. There'll also be a story of redemption and God's rescue there for them. Now, whether or not that's true or not, we can't guess. We're not here to talk about science fiction. But, but our God is big enough and Jesus is significant enough that the master storyteller will have weaved Jesus into every civilization and every planet and every part of life in this incredibly vast universe because God's a master storyteller. So that's Joseph and Jesus, the remarkable similarities there. But what about Joseph and us? Well, I've, the, it was the novelist Virginia Woolf who said, in order for me to make you understand, to give you my life, I must tell you a story. What does the story of your life show? Do you see the goodness of God in it? When you look at it from a macro level and give a summary to someone, do you see God's fingerprints in it? When you engage in your life, scene by scene, micro, year by year, do you see God in it? 
Joseph's life is one that so much happens, it's hard for us to come up with a summary. But fortunately, Joseph himself gives us a summary, an overview of his life. He says when he, he sees his brothers and they're reconciled to one another, he says, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me into slavery. For God sent me here ahead of you to preserve life. Or at the end of his life, his brothers are still a little bit scared. So he says to them again, you, what you meant evil against me, God meant it for good. That's Joseph's summary of his life. You know, everything that happened to him, his own kin, his family betraying him, the humiliation and the hurt of that, being sold into slavery, being wrongly accused, being imprisoned for years at a time in a dank, dirty, dark, smelly prison. Joseph bore the scars of a life well lived. Joseph knew what it was to be swallowed up by life and spat out the other side. But rather than getting bitter, Joseph instead allowed God to make him better. He allowed the events to be used by God to heal him. Rather than getting bitter, Joseph allowed God to use the events of his life to make him better. How is that possible? And I was, I was talking to someone this week who's not a believer, who's quite a convinced atheist. And he said to me, even if the Christian God that you tell me about is real, I wouldn't want to know him because life is so brutal. How can he be good if this is your God? That was, his, was one way of processing the world. Joseph experienced the hard life and processed it differently. How is that possible? Well, it is possible. Let me tell you about the story of uh, Helen Roosevelt. You know the story of Dr. Helen Roosevelt? She died last year, aged 91. A remarkable woman. Uh, I read a blog about her recently entitled, A Woman of Whom the World Was Not Worthy. And it's right. Helen Roosevelt was born in 1925. I became a Christian, was educated at Cambridge University as a doctor. And as a Christian, she attended a missionary convention where she stood up and she said to the the congregation, she said, I'll go wherever God wants me to, whatever the cost. And she paid a high cost. In 1953, as a young and enthusiastic missionary, aged just 28, she traveled to the Congo where she ministered for nine years as a doctor, opening medical practices and trying to help and heal the people in the region and tell them about Jesus. Nine years after being there, the country was given its independence from Belgium and civil war broke out. Uh, Her facilities were destroyed by the rebels and she herself was captured by them. And she describes in her book the horror that she encountered after trying to escape She said, they found me, dragged me to my feet, struck me over my head and shoulders, flung me on the ground, kicked me, then dragged me to my feet only to strike me again. The sickening, searing pain of a broken tooth, a mouthful of sticky blood, my glasses gone. I was yelled at, insulted and cursed. And then on October 29th, 1964, she was brutally raped twice. And in that moment, she felt that God had left her, abandoned her. He would. But in that darkness, in that aloneness, she also sensed God speak to her. And God said to her, will you trust me even if you never know why any of this has ever happened? Well, later she went on to write about that experience and how God used it for good. She saw many of the people that she was working with um, become 
Christians put their faith in Christ as a result. She went on to talk about the privilege of suffering for the gospel and what God has done in her life. She said this, she said, through the brutal and heartbreaking experience of rape, God met with me with outstretched arms of love. He was so utterly there, so totally understanding. His comfort was so complete. And suddenly I knew, I really knew that his love was unutterably sufficient. He did love me. He did understand. Dr. Helen learned what Joseph learned. That in summary and in the specifics of our life, God is a master storyteller. Life is not random or meaningless, and even our pain can be redeemed and used by God. Even our pain doesn't have to be wasted. So as you look at your life on a macro point of view, you see the summary of your life. Do you see God's goodness in it? Well, what about the details? Let's consider your life and Joseph's life, scene by scene. Joseph was thrown into a pit. He was thrown into a pit of death. With the statement from his brothers, let's see what will become of those dreams now. Let's crush those dreams. He was there. His dreams were gone. Life has a way of doing that. You know, our, our young, enthusiastic dreams. Helen Roosevelt's enthusiastic dreams of what missionary living might look like. Life has a way of crushing them. Or reality has a way of making things extremely difficult for us. Which is okay. Because Jesus himself even said to us, Jesus said to his followers, unless a kernel of wheat goes into the ground and dies, it can't bear any fruit. Unless you're willing to die, unless you're willing to give up the rights on your life and hand it over to me, your life won't bear any fruit. Spend your life in service to God and others. Jesus' exhortation was to us. Surrender the, the rights to your life. Entrust them to the author. Scene by scene, day by day. You get this when a popular novel gets turned into a film. You hear that the author has handed over the rights to their book to a studio. And that must be a scary moment. That their labor of love is now going to be put into the hands of a capitalist machine and see what will pop out the other side. With your life, God says the same. Hand over the rights to your life to me, the author, and see what I'm able to do. See, Joseph's dreams die in that pit. But he remains mindful of God, mindful of the author. After being sold into slavery and being placed in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife makes advances on Joseph. No one's around. I want to find out. Come and lie with me, love. The story, the song goes from Joseph. Come and lie with me. But in that moment, his dreams are dead. He's not nobody. He's a slave. No one will find out. No one will know. But Joseph remains mindful of God, even in the face of temptation. And he responds in two ways. The first in Genesis 39, he says, how can I do this and sin against God? Potiphar's wife makes advances and he doesn't say, your husband's been really good to me. I don't want to do this sin against your husband. Instead, he says, how can I do this sin against God? He sees that all sin is first and primarily a sin against God. It's what David tells us in Psalm 51 where he's confessing his sin of committing adultery. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. And you think, well, hang on a minute, you've sinned against a few others. But no, Joseph remains mindful of the author. That's the first thing he does. The second thing he does 
is he runs. He heads for the hills. He flees from temptation. That's why all of us should always wear trainers. So we're ready to run in any given moment when temptation springs upon us. Remain mindful of God and run. Do you respond like that in your day-to-day, scene-by-scene story of your life when temptation comes? Your dreams might have been killed. Your life has probably taken a very unexpected turn, sometimes for the worst. Do you remain mindful of God in the face of temptation? You should do. We live in a society that basically is explained away sin. There's no such thing as sin. It's all perspective, right? As our culture says, it's fine. You can do what you want. Don't worry about what God says. Or we can change what God says to fit our culture. That's the world that we live in. But the Bible warns us about sin, not because God's concerned with awarding stars and stickers on our star chart. And be a good boy and good girl and you'll get all these points and if you sin, you won't. No, the Bible warns us against sin because sin has a way of destroying us, of ruining our lives. Sin is an undoing of the fabric of our lives because at our root we're created to know and love and be in relationship with him. And sin is a way of saying, don't do that, don't trust the author. Instead, listen to your own impulses, your own society. Oh, it's, it's so tragic. I meet so many uh, young guys and girls, especially through doing the gap year that I run, who are full of dreams of adventuring God. And then a temptation comes along and they think, oh, I'm sure that's fine. I can click on that link. No one will see. I can go out with that girl or guy. No one will mind. I can say yes to that invitation. No one will care. I don't need to get that part of my life right. It doesn't matter. I'm ready to do anything you want, God. Just as long as it's not costly, as long as it's not hard, as long as I haven't got to run anywhere and I can just watch Netflix. That's what I'm ready for, God. But like Joseph, we need to remain mindful of God. So many times I meet young people who are enthusiastic for God in a few years' time. You think, well, where are they? They were full of dreams for God. Yeah, but she was more attractive than God. She was more important to him. Or spending their money on that was far more of a dream that captured their heart than giving their time and money and energy and love to God. Joseph's dreams were gone. But even in the pit, he remained mindful of God. Joseph's commitment, what's worse is that Joseph's commitment to integrity got him thrown in prison. He's like, thanks a lot, God. I trusted you and now I'm in prison. So we're not saying trust God and your life will be easy. Of course we're not saying trust God because it's good for you and because God is the great author that we can trust with our lives. And then in prison, the people that he's with, they get a dream and he thinks, I'm gifted at dream interpretation. This is what I do. It's like arriving somewhere and thinking, they need a guitarist. I play guitar. I'm ready. Here I am. This is my moment. You need a preacher? This guy's no good. Let me have a go. I'm ready, oh God. Here's my gift. Do what you want. So Joseph interprets the dreams and says to the the wine cup bearer, he says, remember me and my gift, my ministry, joseph.org. You'll find me online. Hashtag interpreter of dreams. But the cup bearer forgets Joseph. He's restored to his place of honor and he leaves Joseph in prison. And we find ourselves singing, poor, poor Joseph. What you gonna do? Things are looking bad. Hey, what you gonna do? But in prison, the people forgot him, but God didn't. God, the storyteller, the author, knew exactly where his character was. And when he was ready after two years, (laughs) thanks a lot. When he was ready after two years, he disturbed Pharaoh's sleep. And he said, I know a man. I know someone. Joseph is ready. 
God uses the circumstances of our lives to prepare us for what he's got for us. Having a gift is not enough. We're all gifted and talented because that's the church, right? God has given you a gift. He's given it to you to serve the people around you. But promotion and influence, that comes from God when he says you're ready, not when you say you're ready. You can manipulate circumstances all you want to get people to notice you, but God will, have a, God will find a way of keeping you in prison or in the dark or keeping the arrow in the quiver until he's ready to take you out and use you. But in the quiver, in the prison, in the dark, we can trust the storyteller. We can trust that God is an author, a master storyteller. We can trust that life is not random or meaningless. The person next to you is having great fortune and life's cushy for them. For you, it's hard. It's not random. It's not meaningless. There's a shepherd. There's a storyteller. And even your pain is not wasted. It's arguably, it's your pain that matters most. You know, it's, it's, when life's going fine, my prayers, well, they're kind of, I'll pray, but to be honest, Lord, it doesn't matter because I've got a full bank account and I'm very healthy. So if you don't answer my prayer, that's fine by me because I've got an Amazon account and we'll be okay for the next few months. But it's when things are difficult. When you're in the prison of life that you get thrown onto your face before God and there's no one else who can help you. And like Jacob, a few chapters ago, we wrestle with God. And like Jacob, it's the wrestling with God that does us the most good anyway. So sometimes, like Helen Roosevelt, we're to count suffering a privilege because we see that God uses it to produce remarkable things in our lives. But in the summary and in the specifics of our lives, what we see is that God is a master storyteller. Life is not meaningless and pain isn't wasted. So Joseph's life teaches us that Macbeth was wrong. There is a story that God is writing with your life. Your life is part of a bigger purpose. Jesus is the centerpiece. You're a tree in a story about a forest. It's about him. But he's writing that story. Your story won't be what you planned for. When you sell the rights to your life and you give them to the author, he'll do things differently from how you would have done them. I'd have cast this person to play my life, not them. It won't be easy. But if you entrust him with your life, it'll cost you. It'll cost you more than you could have otherwise done it. It'll cost you money. It'll cost you time. It'll cost you sacrifice. It'll cost you your safety. It'll cost you your reputation at times but it'll be worthwhile. Because at the end of your life, you'll look back and you'll be able to say, like Joseph, you'll be able to give some knockout story of what you intended for evil, God meant for good. Actually, my favorite summary comes from Joseph's father, Jacob, who before he goes, he's blessing his boys and praying over them. And he says to Joseph, I mean, Jacob's had a messy life, but he says to him, God has been my shepherd all the days of my life. That's his summary statement. And every day of our lives, we get to walk hand in hand with that shepherd. God's a master storyteller. Life's not meaningless. Pain's not wasted. We're going to respond this morning by breaking, firstly, by breaking bread together, which is our way of remembering the story that we're part of. If you're a Christian, then we 
break bread and we take juice as an act of remembrance of Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection, of Jesus' covenant commitment to us that's stronger than any husband or wife commitment. It's a binding promise that says, never will I leave you or forsake you. And we're going to take that bread, we're going to drink that juice as a way of saying, this is the story my life is a part of. This is what my life counts for. I might die in ignominy. No one will know who I am, but I'm known in heaven. I'm known to him because that's the story my life comes in. And I'm trusting the author of all things to weave and to write a masterful story with the pages of my life. Let's stand together. I'll pray. And perhaps the band can come and join me. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the privilege of living lives that are not pointless. God, to look at the world, there's a lot that goes on that I just think, this is chaotic. Is anyone in charge? I thank you that there is someone who's in charge. And he's a masterful, good, loving storyteller. That at the end of all things, we will be able to look back and say, everything you ever did was majestic and beautiful and right and true. And so today, Father, we give you our lives. We offer you our hand and we say, lead us wherever you'll have us to go. We'll follow. Amen.